Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. and welcome to another off-season edition of Phillies Therapy. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. My name is Paul Boyer. Let's get you caught up with the happenings in Phillies land from the previous week. Starting off with a bit of monetary news, Dave Dombrowski, the president of baseball operations, Dylan Dave, captain of the ship, has been given a three-year contract extension. It extends his current deal and will keep him with the club or at least keep him being paid by the club through 2027. Uh, this is fine. I don't think anybody is mad about this. Obviously, Dombrowski made a number of moves that, uh, brought players into the Phillies that ended up playing a huge role in their postseason run. You know, you talk about guys like Edmundo Sosa, you talk about, uh, other deadline acquisitions like David Robertson for his part, uh, Kyle Schwarber's free agent signing. A lot of the things he's done have worked out so far. Maybe you could say the Castellanos move hasn't quite done that, but you know what? For the most part, He's hitting, and I think when you take a team to the World Series in your second year, second full year at the helm, and you make enough moves to improve the team without emptying the farm system, which has defied a bit of his stereotype, as true or untrue as that still may be, he's got a lot to work with, and this will keep him um, working with the Phillies, guiding the Phillies, constructing the Phillies, through the 2027 season, which feels like it's a long way away, uh, but we'll probably be here before we know it, just because time seems to move faster than light anymore. Uh, so good for Dave. He'll be uh, uh, leading the Phillies front office for the next few years. I, I think the bigger piece of news that came out this past week is that Bryce Harper's surgery, uh, his actual procedure was unveiled. It happened, took place, apparently went well. He had Tommy John surgery on his right throwing elbow. And we'll miss a considerable amount of time. Now, again, we all knew this was coming. We all knew Harper was going to miss some time at the start of the year. Right now, from the way things are going, it sounds as if he's going to get back to baseball activities sometime in May, swinging a bat. He'll probably be able to return to game action, at least as the prognosis goes right now, sometime around the All-Star break. So think sometime in July. That's a fairly long recovery, and he still won't be able to play the outfield for a little while after that. So it'll be a little bit more of the same. Uh, that we saw in 2022. But getting Bryce Harper's bat back is obviously a big enough win in itself and another win for the Universal DH, which helps make all of this possible. Can you imagine if the Universal DH wasn't around, how Harper would have missed all of the the rest of last year, at least half that season, would miss who knows how much of this coming season? It, it would be really bad. Uh, so thank you, Universal DH. Please stick around and please keep uh, benefiting the Phillies. Harper's absence is going to be felt. I don't think there's any way you can make up for that. You know, the fact that the 2022 team was able to survive and sometimes thrive without Harper is a testament to their their 
will and resilience, I think, if you want to tackle on some intangibles. But the sheer fact of the matter is, is you don't want to lose your best position player for months at a time if you want to make a serious run at the postseason. Now, that being said, the Phillies are returning a lot of their key pieces and they should still be a good team. We figure there's still a ton of work left for them to do this offseason. You don't know what free agents they might bring in, what trades they might do, and there will probably be ways for them to try and make up some of the lost production. I'm sure you're going to see some sort of rotation of any of Kyle Schwarber, Nick Castellanos, maybe Reese Hoskins filter into that DH spot, maybe JT Romuto on an off day. Eh, freeze things up a little bit because when Harper comes back, at least until he's ready to play the outfield, he's going to be your DH. And then the outfield goes back to looking like what it looked like for most of 2022, we think. Uh, either case, not a catastrophe that Harper needed Tommy John surgery. Um, and the simple fact of the matter is, as far as I see it, he's going to make a recovery. He's going to get back in the outfield. He's going to be able to throw again. And that's really important. It'll be nice to get Harper back out in the outfield, ideally before the 23 season ends. We'll have to see how the recovery goes and how he's feeling and how all that takes uh, take shape. But Bryce Harper is going to miss some time again. Phillies are going to start the year without him. And they'll have to find a way to, to hang in there. I think they can. You know, like I was just saying a minute ago, it's not the best plan in the world to have your best position player out for months at a time. And it's a shame, really, it continues to be a shame, that Harper will have ended up only playing one complete entire season in his first five with Philadelphia. You know, one of those wasn't, none of them are really his fault. The shortened 2020 season and a couple of freak injuries like we've had. But he played 157 games in, in 2019. And in the rest, um, hasn't been able to take the field for, for quite as many games. In fact, it's just a combined 298 over the last three seasons. Again, 2020 was only a 60-game season. So it's a shame. Uh, he won't play in an all-star game again as a member of the Phillies. He was elected finally last year, but of course couldn't play because of his injury. Um, and it's just kind of strange because he's been able to accomplish so much uh, in this this relatively short span of time. You know, he's he's been with the Phillies for four seasons, a little more than half of the time that he spent with the Nationals. This will be his age 30 season. <laughs> in case you forgot, he just turned 30 last month. So he's got miles on him, you know, his, his body's taken some, some dings and dents and hit by pitches. And, and, and this elbow injury is a little bit concerning because it's, it's a bit different from a, a contact injury. Um, but we'll have to see how he responds. He's a position player, not a pitcher. So hopefully uh, the elbow responds well to treatment and rehab. And he ends up not taking that big of a hit with his defense as things move forward. Um, so it's been kind of a strange stagnated start to his Phillies career? I guess that might be the right word. Um, either way, it'll be nice to have Harper for however long he's able to contribute, and we'll see him at some time in the middle of the summer. Last little bit of Phillies news to really come out this past week was a report that prior to acquiring Noah Syndergaard from the Angels, the Phillies were apparently nearing a deal to bring in Seattle Mariners left-hander Marco Gonzalez. Now, Gonzalez just finished his age 30 season, he ended up going on the year in a full season for Seattle, making 32 starts, 183 innings pitched, which is, you know, something of a rarity these days not to turn your nose up at. Wasn't really overwhelming, though. Uh, this was a guy who 
had some effective moments, you know, earlier in his career with the Mariners. He's he's a mid-rotation guy on his best days. Um, last year was not the best version of himself. You know, he had a FIP over five. Strikeouts per nine were way down. Strikeout percentage, of course, way down too. He only struck out 103 batters of the 783 that he faced. ERA plus under 100. I mean, this is another guy who could not have cost that much to acquire. Um, he was only two years removed from a, a crazy good strikeout to walk ratio in the shortened 2020 season. He looked good that year, um, but it hasn't really translated to the two full seasons after that. He he's he's a, he's a nice pitcher, you know. Th- this is a guy who you consider a major league arm, but wouldn't really have been much of a difference maker. Uh, I think the Phillies are happy with what they got out of Noah Syndergaard for um, how that move turned out. And I don't think Marco Gonzalez would have moved the needle too much in either direction. Might have even been a worse ad than Noah was. Either way, that reported deal, this according to the Seattle Times' Ryan Divish, ended up not happening. The Phillies, of course, picked up Noah Syndergaard, who made a start in the World Series. The rest is history. Last thing for this week involves the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Ballots went out earlier this week. There are 28 players for the Baseball Writers Association of America to choose from to try and elect to the Hall of Fame. You may, of course, remember that the likes of Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens have fallen off of this ballot because the limit of years you could be on the ballot was sharply dropped from 15 to 10. They did not receive enough consideration and so now move to the, I believe it's either the Modern Era or the Golden Age, I believe it's Modern Era Committee, uh, where they may or may not continue to get elected into the Hall of Fame. Either way, the writers have not put them in. We move on to the remaining crop, and there are a number of Phillies, former Phillies, uh, first-timers and returning guys alike, who will be interesting to watch, I think, as the ballots begin to come in. Um, Of course, you need to receive at least 5% of the vote, which is something that former Phillies, Scott Rowland, Billy Wagner, and legends or semi-legends, Jimmy Rollins and Bobby Abreu were able to accomplish last year. There's also first-timer Jason Wirth, who finds his name on the ballot. You're eligible if you have at least 10 years' time in the major league. So Wirth, uh, after his time with the Phillies, of course, spent uh, more time with the Washington Nationals and, and ended up rounding out a pretty nice major league career. He does not stand to make the Hall of Fame. It's really just a matter of whether he gets the 5% to stay on the ballot. Now for the other four, they all have interesting cases and for different reasons. Uh, Billy Wagner obviously only spent a couple of years with the Phillies. He is regarded as one of the very best relievers in the history of the sport. That's why he's on this ballot. Um, Certainly on the short list of, if not the very best left-handed relievers out there. Um, This is a guy who was overpowering for his time, you know, prior to the, the strikeout takeover. This was a guy who could huck the ball at 9,900 miles an hour with regularity and punch out a bunch of guys while not walking the world. You know, that's usually something that came along with uh, a high octane arm is that a lot of walks would also follow. Not the case for a lot of Billy Wagner's career. Uh, He stands a very good chance, I think, of eventually making it into the Hall of Fame simply because he accomplished a lot, of course, regular season um, as as one of the very best left-handed relievers there is. Does not have a World Series title to show for any of this. In fact, only advanced beyond the first round of the playoffs once. Uh, but this is somebody who, you know, I'm a big hall guy. I, I kind of like seeing guys who've, who have had their 
their moments of importance and their their really dominant stretches, even if it was only for a couple of years, get rewarded and, and get enshrined, you know, on baseball merit with something like this. I, I think it's at least intellectually consistent with the way the hall is currently structured. Uh, so I would I would eventually like to see Billy Wagner get in there. Of course, he is in his eighth year on the ballot, and last year only received 51% of the vote. You need 75% to get in. Voting is very strange in that more and more people tend to tack on votes to these guys as they spend more time on the ballot, which doesn't doesn't make a ton of sense. If they're a Hall of Famer, they should be a Hall of Famer and you vote for them. But especially now that the ballot is a little bit less clogged with uh, Bonds and Clemens off, David Ortiz getting elected, Kurt Schilling off, uh, there's a little more room to squeeze some of these guys on if you're a big ballot guy like I am. If you're a small ballot guy, yeah, maybe you're not really considering Billy Wagner so much. The guy who stands the best chance to get elected this year out of those five former Phillies is Scott Rowland. Again, you pretty much know the story there. Generally regarded as one of the very best defensive third basemen of his generation. Had some good offensive numbers to boot. This is his sixth year on the ballot, and he got 63% of the vote last year. He ended up playing with the Phillies uh, from the 96 season through 2002 when he was eventually traded, of course, under rather acrimonious circumstances. The trade package, as you might remember, was Placido Polanco, Bud Smith, and Mike Timlin, which is a really, really light return for a star third baseman in his mid-20s, his age 27 season. Water under the bridge, I guess. But he's somebody who, you know, simply on reputation, defensive reputation, uh, had a couple of big postseason moments. Uh, somebody who ended up winning a World Series with the St. Louis Cardinals back in 2006. He's got the boxes pretty well checked off. Uh, 63% to 75% is a bit of a jump to make in one year. Uh, again, though, this is where the lighter ballot comes into play. There's a decent chance he gets elected this year. If not, he's got a few more years after this. I would expect Scott Rowland to eventually get into the Hall of Fame. Now, with those guys out of the way, let's talk about a couple of guys who make a little bit more sense, who are a little bit more appealing uh, to the Phillies fan base on the whole. We'll start with Bobby Abreu, who was in his fourth year on the ballot, received just under 9% of the vote last season. Look, opinions differ, sometimes wildly on Bobby Abreu, what he was, what kind of player he was, what he actually meant to the Phillies. Uh, this is a guy who did not play in the postseason for the Phillies. He was not around when they eventually broke their drought, uh, the first one, <laughs> the first drought back in 2007. He was traded to the Yankees in 2006, and from 2006 on into 2014, his final year, he had some nice moments. He had some good years with the Angels out West, um, had a good half season with the Dodgers, and eventually finished his career with the Mets, where he was sort of just a, a, a light-hitting outfield replacement in his age 40 season. The Phillies actually invited him back to spring training uh, toward the end of his career, uh, if you believe it, right before that 2014 season, actually. Uh, they ended up cutting him, and he went on to post a, a 680 OPS with the Mets that season. But while he was with the Phillies, nine years with the Phillies, over 1,300 games, 5,885 plate appearances, and all he did in that time was hit over 300 
on base over 400, slug over 500. It's an OPS plus of 139. He stole 254 bases, got caught 80 times, but still, that's a good rate. Hit almost 200 homers, had 348 doubles. Look, a lot of the memory of Bobby Abreu, I feel, gets caught up in the rather hilarious gold glove he was awarded in 2005. I think we can all agree that Bobby Abreu is not a world-class defender. But I think there's a little bit too much of a counterweight put on that defense when we talk about how good of a hitter this guy was. Maybe he didn't quite matter as much in the grand scheme of the franchise because he didn't actually play on one of these playoff teams. Wasn't really his fault. You know, he got dealt when he was having a really good season, ended up being even better for the Yankees, not just uh, in that 2006 year, but the couple years after that. And of course, keeping with the theme of kind of underwhelming trade packages, if you remember this one, it was Abreu and Corey Lytle to the Yankees for Carlos Monasterios, Matt Smith, the only two of these four guys to make the major leagues, plus CJ Henry and Jesus Sanchez. CJ Henry is, of course, notable because he was traded to the Phillies, then was either released or retired or something in 2007, and then immediately went back to the Yankees minor league system. (laughs) He never ended up making the major leagues. I just always thought I thought that was funny and so indicative of what it was like with the Phillies in the early 2000s with, you know, trading guys away. Anyway, Bobby Abreu was a really, really good offensive player. He was he was really good. I, I think it bears mentioning that he he needs a little bit of a pump up with his offensive reputation in our circles. Um, I hope that's not really the case anymore. I hope time has has softened that. And people who pull up his baseball reference page now see a guy who was a really excellent performer for a long time, really durable, really stayed on the field, um, had a couple of 30-30 seasons. You know, this guy was just really, really good. And after he left, he he had a couple more big years in the AL after that. If you're thinking along the lines of Big Hall, again, like I am, just staying intellectually consistent, think about how Bobby Abreu, compares to someone like Jim Rice, who was fairly recently elected. Rice spent his entire 16-year career with the Boston Red Sox and had a significantly better defensive reputation than Bobby Abreu, which should be noted. But think about this from an offensive perspective to try and offset that just a little bit. So again, if Jim Rice is an outfield Hall of Fame standard, let's think about this. Bobby Abreu played in roughly 300 or so more games than Jim Rice, ended up logging about 1,000 more plate appearances. He had 100 fewer home runs, but had 200 more doubles, had 350 more stolen bases, and, of course, 90 more caught stealings. He ended up hitting about the same as Rice with a 291 average against Rice's 298. Abreu's on-base percentage, again, this is for his career, is 395. Rice was just 352. So Abreu's got him eventually in OPS by 16 points. Their OPS pluses, because of their different eras, are the same at 128. Look, if Jim Rice, again, is the standard here, Bobby Abreu meets that standard. You look at wins above replacement, too, if you want to dig into that. Abreu piled up 60. 60 wins above replacement. 
by baseball references measure. Rice had just a shade under 48. It's all about that consistency, right? If you have somebody in the Hall of Fame who sets a bar, which everybody in the Hall of Fame should do, there should be somebody who who sets the bar at a lower point, right? Because that's that's the gateway to entry. And if you have somebody who exceeds that, they should be a Hall of Famer. I feel like that that logic holds up pretty well. If that's what we're working with here, then Bobby Abreu is a Hall of Famer. I just don't think he's got that slam dunk kind of reputation. And it did take Rice a while to eventually get in. So there's still some work to be done. Abreu figures to stay on the ballot for another year. I don't really think he's in jeopardy of falling off here. Again, he was in the single digits, but uh, this is somebody whose body of work, I think, could use a little bit of the the Tim Raines treatment. You know, somebody who who flew a little bit under the radar with Hall of Fame writers until he got a little bit more of a lift from, you know, internet writers and, and people out there who had a little bit more time to dig into what a player was actually able to accomplish and say, hey, he was worthy. And I think that should be a Abreu's case. This will be his fourth year on the ballot again. So he's got a little bit of time after this, but he's got so much ground to make up. We'll have to see how the results go this year and whether he gets any substantial gains. Last but not least, of course, we have Mr. J-Roll himself, Jimmy Rollins, who has an interesting Hall of Fame case. You know, I actually... I started off thinking when I was doing this that that I, I was not going to be very optimistic about Rollins' chances at eventually getting elected. That looking at his career page, you think, okay, yeah, he had a couple really good years, but is this a Hall of Fame player? And maybe that's still up in the air. You know, the, the latter half of his career, offensively speaking, was not fantastic. You know, if we want to get the bad news out of the way, of course, from 2009 on through the end of his career, he was just a 247 hitter, slugged under 400 OPS plus, just over 90. Uh, defense was still fine, but eventually had to retire at the end of the 2016 season after playing the year with the Chicago White Sox. And you think, okay, that was half of his career. That's not really great. And I don't really think that the, that says a lot for his chances, but Look at the first half of his career, and it's a bit better. Again, relative to the era, he wasn't beating down doors on offense, but he was a 277 hitter, 333 on base, slugged over 440. Again, OPS plus, that's only 99. For the era he was playing in in the early 2000s, that's <laughs> it's, it's not the most powerful output. You take that from a shortstop today, of course, but back then it was it was really just kind of average. But you think about everything else that goes into it. In that first half of his career, from 2000 through 2008, he had over 300 doubles. He had almost 100 triples. He had 125 home runs. Again, this is mostly while batting leadoff, too. Had over 500 RBI. Stole nearly 300 bases and was only caught 60 times. Played really, really good defense, too. I don't know if you consider him Ozzie Smith, exactly. But he did pick up some hardware. He was renowned for his arm, I feel like. Um, and really played a nice shortstop for a long time. Ended up holding his defense pretty well. Uh, that's one thing that didn't really age as dramatically as his bat did later on in his career. Yeah, I, I was trying to think of who's his comp, right? We were just talking about Bobby Breu and Jim Rice in, in the outfield. 
I don't really have a great shortstop comp for Jimmy Rollins, at least not on a very quick look. There, there might be somebody better out there. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that. But in thinking about middle infielders, to broaden things a little bit, I look at somebody like Alan Trammell, right? Alan Trammell, of course, played his entire 20-year career with the Detroit Tigers. He logged more time than Jimmy Rollins did in the major leagues, for sure. But you look at their numbers side by side, and you think, well, okay. If you squint, you can kind of see it for their careers. Rollins had a 743 OPS, which was a 95 OPS plus. Trammell had a 767 OPS, which is a little bit higher, but a 110 OPS plus, again, because the, the late 70s, 80s, into the, the early 90s were a bit more suppressed offensively. Now think about what their peak looked like, right? Think about what their best stretch of their career was. Not just a single year, but a multi-year stretch where you could say, oh yeah, all right, that was dominant. Or they put together something that really resembled a, a, a top-tier Hall of Fame stretch of play. And this is a little bit arbitrary, but think about it in terms of uh, an eight-year block. For Rollins, that eight-year block was 2001 to 2008. And for Trammell, that was 1983 to 1990. Rollins, during his eight-year peak, quote-unquote, hit almost 280 with the, the OBP over 330, slugged 440, OPS plus 99. Had over 100 homers, 300 doubles. Had it all going for him. Stolen bases. It was great. Defense was good, too. Received some down-ballot MVP consideration and eventually won one in 2007. Alan Trammell from 83 to 90, batted 297, 362 on base. Those are above Rollins, slugged 450. OPS of 813, OPS plus 125. So Trammell has him there. For their careers, things are a little bit closer. For their peaks, Rollins falls a little bit short. And it's hard for me to find somebody that matches up a little bit better because you want to find somebody that you'd be like, oh, yeah, of course, absolutely. Jimmy Rollins matches up with that guy for sure. And there just doesn't seem to be that perfect fit, certainly not at shortstop among current Hall of Famers. You know, you look at somebody else like Barry Larkin was also a, a superior offensive player. You look at Derek Jeter was also a superior offensive player, uh, not a superior defensive player. And it just it, it's a little difficult to find that measuring stick for Rollins. But that being said, you look at some of the things that are like Hall of Fame monitors and, and, and measures, you know, like Jay Jaffe's um, uh, Jaws metric. Jimmy Rollins does pretty well. He's apparently the 32nd ranked shortstop all time, both in terms of career wins above replacement, the peak that we were just talking about with the seven years and the Jaws metrics, as well as wins above replacement per 162 games. He does okay but he falls a little bit short of the average Hall of Fame shortstop in those areas. And there are only 23 Hall of Fame shortstops. So it might be a little bit of a long road. It might be a little bit of tough sledding. It might be hard to convince an electorate that this is somebody who, who should keep moving up the ballots, who should continue to keep accruing votes um, because the numbers don't hold up quite as well if you really dig into them. Obviously, you can't say the same thing for any of us in this area who lived through what he did, what he accomplished, 
the the lore and the and the legend that surrounds somebody like Jimmy Rollins. You'll never be able to take that away from us. And he's in our own personal Hall of Fames forever. He'll have his jersey number retired, or he should, regardless of how <laughs> the National Hall of Fame election turns out. Uh, personally, and the same with Abreu, I would love to see him stay on the ballot, keep getting more vote shares, have more people talk about him, think about him as a big hall kind of guy, um, because it would just it would feel it would it would feel warm and fuzzy, pure and simple to get somebody like Jimmy Rollins into the Hall of Fame. It would be amazing. It won't be easy. It'll probably take all 10 years that he's going to be on the ballot. But hey, who knows? Who am I to say? Let's get Jay Roll into the Hall of Fame. Why not? Let's get him in. Let's get him and Bobby both. Let's make it a party. All right. I think that's enough mild controversy for one day. Thanks again, everybody, for checking in. Uh, Matt is still on vacation, on his well-deserved vacation, but the clock is ticking and coming up on its end as the winter meetings approach. Uh, coming up here in the first week of December. We'll have him back in to check in from San Diego as the Phillies hopefully start to uh, push a few of these dominoes over and let the bigger picture start to take shape. It'll be interesting to see what moves Dombrowski and company have up their sleeves, whether one of those big four shortstops signs uh, during this week, during those winter meetings. We'll have to see. Um, some other interesting stuff could happen as well. It's going to be a, a swirl of rumors and excitement, I'm sure. And it'll be great to have Matt back on to talk through all of it. So until then, we'll catch back with you uh, a little bit as the meetings get closer to kicking off and, and uh, as they roll on through in San Diego starting early next month. For Matt, I am Paul, and we'll see you around. Then.